not in a full exhaustive commentary. Uh, it may have felt exhaustive to you, but it was not a full, we weren't comment, com, making comments about every verse. It was a different style of preaching for me. It's not bringing a particular subject. It's not three points. It's just taking the scriptures. I've made some statements to you in the past that I'd like to just clarify one of which very quickly this morning. I've made reference to a biblically illiterate generation, and, and, and it seems kind of, um, it seems negative, and, and, and it, to a degree that is. I think one of the things that as a church that we have failed in our responsibility of challenging the church family to really get the word and get, become studious and study the word farther than just at need level. What I see when I, he, when I see and listen to a lot of ministry in our culture today that is evangelistic at heart is it, it, every sermon is about someone's need, some type of need that's in the physical realm. Maybe it's a marital need. Maybe it's a financial need. Maybe, and that's, that's a good, I understand. There's a need for us to communicate truth. But I tell you, I still believe that if we would get certain doctrines inside of us, you could fill the cup up and it would run over and fill up the platter. Does that make sense? I think that if we as a church family challenge each other to just really get into the heart of the Word of God, uh, then as we do, we're going to mature. We're going to add to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. And as we add knowledge, then we're going to, as as Peter made that comment in the second epistle that bears his name, it says that you would no longer be ashamed once you have the strength of understanding that the knowledge provides, the knowledge of God. So that's been my target to just kind of just try to discover the work of the Holy Spirit in our life in this particular vein. Now, when I started this series, I made reason I'm backtracking for a little bit today is because either this week or next week will culminate in this particular vein. As, the, as I started this series, I went in in the context of the summer school of the Spirit. And I did what is typical for us Pentecostal charismatic pastors, and that is I led us into a teaching on the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And certainly I value that great work of God's Spirit and want to be found guilty of teaching every one of you to desire earnestly the baptism of the Holy Spirit and to receive the baptism, for we believe that's available to all of God's children. As many as the Lord our God shall call, the Apostle Peter said. But as I did so, as I began my personal journey of studying, I just began to be affixed in my studies with the work of the Spirit, but not in the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the infilling of the Spirit, but the indwelling Spirit. That which you receive at regeneration. When God sends His Spirit into your heart crying, Father, Father. Maybe at that moment you don't speak with other tongues. Maybe you're not prophesying. But I'll tell you what, you've been declared to be a child of God. You pass from darkness into light. Come on, the old song said there's a new name written down in glory. There's a new nature that was deposited inside of you. And the Apostle Paul has been making a, uh, an argument. He made multiple arguments in the book of Romans to arrive here at a culmination with the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to, if you will, just join with me. Let's read this together, and then we're going to go back and backtrack some, and then we're going to expound upon it here to close out today. But let's just pick up this first verse of the 8th chapter to just set the context today. And 
we typically, you know, for, I haven't been doing this, but let's go ahead if you don't mind and let's stand in honor of the reading of Scripture because I haven't been reading this passage, a passage prior to ministering the Word. I know it's about 1138 and I'm aware of the time. But if God can add His great blessing to this, and I know it's His desire to do so, I think you'll be greatly encouraged. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm reading from the New King James Version this morning. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised Jesus, or who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also Give life to your mortal bodies. I think the King James says, Quicken your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. What a powerful revelation that is to us. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. By whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit, we'll read two verses. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Come on, somebody. And if indeed, he said, we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. What a powerful word that Paul gives us concerning the work of the Spirit in the heart and the life of a believer. And let's ask that the Holy Spirit would illuminate to our hearts and minds today that we can understand these unique and divine principles. Father, we humble ourselves. And today, God, I feel, Father, even greater physically limited. Father, but my trust is in the Holy Spirit today who gives power, gives grace, gives unction. I pray, Father, as I have prayed in private, now I pray publicly, God. I pray that, Father, you would give me the tongue of the learned, that I might have a word in season for he that is weary. Open the heart and the mind of every listener. And even as I reread and retrace some of these steps today, oh, my Father, I ask that you would add your agreement, add your anointing. Let this word burn in our hearts today, fresh and new. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's children said, amen. amen. You can be seated. 
Now, if you were with me on Wednesday night, I'll probably borrow from some of the things and part of the journey that we made together because it's important for us to arrive at this precipice that we are here at today collectively, that we put ourselves in agreement. And as the Apostle Paul has been going through this discourse in the book of Romans, his, certainly his great knowledge that God has given him both through his study and through a revelation of the Holy Spirit in the history of mankind, as recorded in the book of Genesis, is paramount. The thoughts and things that had happened, that had transpired in the Genesis, are being brought to light once again in a fresh, whole new revelation. Because it brings to us, as we have studied this together, it's caused us to go back. We've gone all the way back to the very Genesis. That back to when the Spirit of God hovered over the earth. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. God said, let there be light. There was light. God, through his creative power and ability, formed the earth. And the latter part of the sixth day, God, we don't know how. We don't know because God was spirit. We don't know did his hand. We use words like that as pastors, that his hand reached down and caught hold of clay. I don't know how it was that it came to be. But for some way and some means, God called the dust out of the ground, the clay out of the ground, and he breathed into it. The man that he had formed by his creative power and ability, God breathed his life and that lifeless matter, inanimate matter, came to life, leaped up, fully functionable. Isn't that exciting to think about that? Fully functional, fully able to communicate at different realms. Once God formed Eve from his rib, he could communicate with her. He could commune with her. He could know her both as a companion and a friend and his wife. But he could also commune with angels. If angels had been walking through the garden, then Adam could have communed. Adam could name the beast of the field as he did. The scripture gives us record. But the greatest gift that God gave Adam on that great day was the ability to commune with God. He gave him an ability to know the Father, and God would come down and visit with them in the cool of the day. But I have to believe that his relationship with God went further than that. It wasn't just that when he was here and God was there, I think that when Adam was walking throughout the garden, just doing what God had called him to do, he was forever in harmony with God. He was functioning the way God intended for him to function. He was doing what God had said do. He had said, keep the garden, till the garden, and that's what he was doing, and he could commune in his spirit and have relationship with God because God had breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man had become a living soul. Now our study has taken us in an ability and a hope that we are adequate or accurately discerning the triune nature of man. It is our belief, it is my belief, excuse me, that God made man in his likeness and in his image, God being triune in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, formed a man in his image and his likeness and made him spirit, soul, and body. He had a physical body, a flesh man that could walk and move and feel and touch. He had soul, mind, will, and emotions. He could communicate. He could understand. He could have wisdom. He could process. But see, God is spirit. God transcends this natural realm in which we live in today. He is spirit. And so what God gave man, it's our belief on that day, was God breathed into his nostrils, breath. It was more than just physical man that came to life, but it was his spiritual man that came to life on that great day. And so now he's functioning in the likeness and the image of God. But God had given Adam command, and that command was to till the garden, keep the garden of all the trees thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the day 
that thou eatest of it, thou shalt surely die. And it's our belief that when Adam took from his wife Eve the forbidden fruit and ate of it, a dying process started in him physically from that day. And it's the scripture records, I believe, Adam to have lived 906 or 908 years. And it's our belief that that, that number began at that moment. But it is also our belief that spiritual death, separation from the pneuma of God, the spirit of God occurred because God didn't say that 900 years after you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. God said the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So it seems to us that that illumination that was in his heart by which he could commune with God in the spirit that, that, that God separated, withdrew. I don't know what happened. I shared an analogy on Wednesday night looking at the temple in Jerusalem, how that the temple, that the Spirit of God dwelt in the temple and the mercy seat. In 1 Kings chapter number 8, Solomon through worship, the Bible says the glory of God came and sat in the temple. But Ezekiel recorded a day when the Spirit of God left and vacated the temple in Ezekiel chapter 10. But Ezekiel also saw another day when the Spirit of God revisited and brought life and his, the presence of God to the temple. And to me, it's an analogy of what happened in in the life of man, that mankind to somehow the Spirit of God separated, spiritual death occurred. He can now search for God. He can know God in his mind, will, and emotions, but he can't commune with God in his spirit. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have life in his spirit. God is spirit. If you're going to worship God, you've got to worship him in spirit and in truth. You just can't bow your life and bend your will to certain precepts and principles and worship God. You have to receive of the breath of God, the life of God. I think that's what Jesus was teaching in John chapter number 3 when he said this, a man must be born again. We've made this argument before, but Nicodemus said, how can I re-enter into my mother's womb the second time and be born? Jesus said, unless you are born by the Spirit, you shall not enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Adam and Eve, when they were driven eastward out of the garden, they could produce children. Their flesh could produce offspring, but they couldn't produce a spirit. They could not release the Holy Spirit. All they could do was produce flesh. Jesus said that which is born of the flesh is flesh but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And what we see in religion is man has followed and attempted to follow God or a God. They would form a, a, a God out of clay or stone. And that's what Paul was addressing in Romans 1 when he talked about the depravity of man because religion can quickly become perverted and distorted. And mankind himself, depraved with spiritual death, can suddenly begin to worship a pantheon of gods. And demon spirits penetrate the minds of men and women until they form a god or an image in what they think God should look like or, or, or be like. And they, and they put it in a pedestal or they put it in a temple or they put it behind a curtain and they call it God. But how many know that's not God? God is the great author of the universe. He's the great architect of the universe. He even said it himself, what is man? Man, what, were they, what kind of temple can you build for me? God said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Who is man? But see, man doesn't have the life of God on the inside of him. But I'll tell you what, God was so loving, he wouldn't let man remain in that condition without coming to him. So hundreds of years later, he came to a man by the name of Abram and he formed a covenant with him, a covenant that was ratified with blood. God formed this covenant and he entered into this covenant through circumcision and there was a promise made to 
to Abraham concerning his seed that God would cause blessing to come to the earth through his seed. And there was a great principle revealed in that passage in the book of Genesis that righteousness would be obtained by faith. A man could be declared righteous in the eyes of God because he had been previously declared a sinner because of he had sinned in the garden. He could be spoken of as righteous by faith. It was a great principle. Time doesn't allow us to go there, but Paul addressed that in the fourth chapter of the book of Romans. But if we back up prior to that, the second and the third chapter, we're reminded that God, because of his great love for mankind, gave them a means to approach him through the lineage of Abraham all the way to a man by the name of Moses who took the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Y'all remember that passage of Scripture? And he brought them to the base of Mount Sinai where God had visited Moses uh, months earlier and promised that the people of Israel would be brought out of Egyptian bondage and that God would form a covenant with them. And there at the base of that mountain, all the people stood and God himself, the great God that had come down in the Genesis, once again came down and he sat on rock granite. An entire mountain suddenly burst in flame and there were thunderings and lightnings and voices and God spoke to man a holy oracle called the Ten Commandments. And he then later wrote those same words on stone and Moses carried them down from the mountain. God also spoke to Moses face to face additional words. He said this, King James English, after the tenor of these words, I'll give you additional words. And it's called the law of Moses. God gave to mankind something holy, something that was from God, something that allowed an unholy, unrighteous man, unholy people to approach God. They couldn't find full reconciliation for their sins. They couldn't find redemption, but they could find atonement, a covering. The sin of the people and the sin debt of the people would be pushed off year by year because of the sacrifice made on the day of atonement. It was a powerful thing, the laws of God. There were civil responsibilities and rights that God gave to both individuals and to the people as a whole. It would keep the people from the perverted practices of the pagans that dwelt in the land around them. You remember God. God said, I'm about to send you into a nation that is possessed by seven nations stronger than you are. And their practices are distorted and perverted and don't follow those practices. But what are you to follow? You're to follow the law of God. You're to read these scriptures. You're to meditate upon the law. You're to think about it, read it, and keep it. And as you do so, it will keep you from falling prey to all the things that are happening in the lives of the... Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? It was a powerful thing to the nation of Israel. And God even said, and we noted this several weeks ago, God even said this, God said, it will be counted to you for righteousness if you can keep it. If you can keep the law, it will be counted. It will be imputed to you the same way that Abraham. But see, the people could not or did not keep the law. And so the weakness of the law, as powerful as it was, and I'll tell you what, I'm one that I see the value of it. I've learned to value the law. I've learned to see it as a divine oracle. But what the weakness of the law is weak through the flesh, and it could not provide full redemption for someone, and it could not declare or impart righteousness into the heart and the life of an individual. It could not, it could not send the Holy Spirit to produce regeneration. It was a powerful thing. God gave it to mankind. But the Bible tells us 
that the law itself was contained with shadows and ordinances that would reveal the one that would come who would fulfill every prophetical element of the law itself. The Bible says in the book of Galatians, when the fullness of time was come, God did send forth his son made of a woman and made under the law that he might redeem those who were under the law. So God sent forth his son, Christ Jesus, to fulfill the promises, the precepts, the principles that had been recorded in the Mosaic law. A man called Christ came and dwelt among us. And it's a parallel. We read about it in John's gospel, the first chapter, when the scripture says the law was given by Moses. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, when God spoke the oracles of God, the word of God on Mount Sinai, it was the word. It was captured on a tablet of stone, and it was called the Ten Commandments. And we can, to a degree, call it the word. But in John 1, John had revelation that previous writers didn't have because the Bible says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh, not stone. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of God full of grace and truth again the law was given by Moses but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ and I'll tell you what when he came down full flesh he came down made of a woman made in the likeness of sinful flesh but the spirit of God was upon him and he did exploits unlike any man had ever done before come on somebody and I'll tell you what I this morning I think I'm not alone but I'm a bona fide Jesus freak in this house today I tell you when I think about what he did all that he accomplished John the revelator would write at the end of his gospel that if the world if they were could ever write down everything that he did in three and a half short years of ministry the world itself would begin to tilt on its axis because of the volume of books that would be written about this one man Jesus Christ hallelujah and I thank God for his work that he lived and exhibited among us because he displayed the love and the power. And he displayed a knowledge of the God that wasn't being taught by the scribes or the Pharisees. He, just, he, he taught about intentions of the law. Sometimes he taught about principles that even exceeded the law. Didn't he even look back at some of the laws and say, well, now, didn't Moses say this? But in the beginning, it was this way. Come on now, church family. So he never devalued the law, but he knew that the law had a purpose to point people to Christ, but he also knew of its weakness, and he knew that he himself would fulfill its demand. So it's a powerful thing, and Paul made that analogy throughout the book of Romans in that comparison, and he brought us to the place where we began to realize that you cannot be declared fully righteous and receive the impartation of righteousness by keeping the principles of the law because the law was in, in itself perfect, but man was imperfect, and the perfect law could not impart a work of grace so real in your heart and life that it would correct what had happened in the Genesis, that that, that transgression that caused by one man's sin entered the world and death by sin. So what it would take is a true substitution had to take place. Because of man's sin, judgment was determined by God. And so God determined to judge one man by one man's sin entered the world and death by sin. But by one man's obedience, by one man's disobedience, death passed to everybody. But by one man's obedience, then life is available to all who will reach out. Hallelujah. 
And so Jesus Christ died on the cross. You say, Pastor, the Romans hung him there. Well, yes and no. We say the Jews hung him there because they betrayed him. Well, yes and no. If I remember it, when I read it, the Bible says that God commended his love for us. It was God that hung him there so that he could pour out his wrath and indignation upon that one man Christ so that you and I who were subject to wrath could now enter into the grace of God. Hallelujah. Man, that's a powerful revelation right there. And then even Jesus himself said, no man takes my life from me. <laughs> Come on. He said, I have freely received this of my father. I will lay it down again and I will take it up again. And that's exactly what happened. On that fateful day when Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Come on. His spirit, the Bible said, descended into the lower parts of the earth. His body is now lifeless. It's hanging there on the cross. Mary's weeping at the base. John is beside her to comfort her. They petition Nicodemus and another, petition the Roman procurator that they might obtain the body of Jesus. Jesus' body is lifeless. It's like the clay in the Genesis. There's no life left in it. It was warm. Now it's cold. It once could communicate. Now there's no communication. It's laying there without any. uh, But where's his spirit? His spirit is descended into the lower parts of the earth into a whole new dimension in a whole new realm that's not tied to time and to season awaiting three days one day the second day because they took his body embalmed it laid it in are y'all hearing what i'm saying laid it in a borrowed tomb of joseph of arimathea closed it and the roman procurator signed a, uh, a decree that would cause it to be sealed and one day passed the second day passed but on the third day Hallelujah. On the third day, the women said, well, you know what? Let's go as we mourn the loss of the one that we believe the Messiah. Let's go and let's mourn and let's embalm his body better than the men because we know the men can't do it right. This is my Lee Brown paraphrased version. So the women went early in the morning to re-embalm his body. And when they got there, they found that the stone had been rolled away and an angel was sitting outside of it and even inside of it. And in fear, they kind of summed scattered one remained and there they found that Christ was raised from the dead what happened to him that raised him from the dead what happened but the very breath of God that had been in the Genesis uh, one more time came ushering out of the nostrils of God and the life are y'all hearing what I'm saying the life of God was imparted into the lifeless body of Jesus and Jesus raised up off of that cold stone and he's made alive by the power of almighty God hallelujah and now you can cut him but will not believe now you can pierce him come on buddy will not die now he can be here in one moment and be gone the next because he's got a resurrected body he's the first fruits of the resurrection and that's why you and i as christians we know that we will all one day succumb to death but we are promised that we are going to be raised again are y'all hearing what i'm saying in a new resurrected form that's akin to jesus christ But there's something contained in that powerful moment of Jesus and him being raised from the dead. Because when he was raised from the dead, he would die no longer. Come on, he's living unto God in a whole new realm and a whole new dimension. I shared with you Wednesday night. I'll remind you of it. We're going to go back to these scriptures in just a moment and we're going to close. But Jesus then in the garden, not in the garden, but when he met with them in Galilee, the Bible says he breathed on his disciples. And said, receive you the Holy Ghost. Now, why does that make sense? Now, the reason why it makes sense is in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. 
the second man, Adam, was made a life-giving spirit. Now, you got to catch hold of that because that's a powerful thing that took place right there. Now, remember Jesus' disciples were afraid they thought he was a spirit. He was not a spirit. He was in a body, but he was possessed by the spirit. And so, and in this place of prominence that God has given him and exalted him in our midst, the Bible says that he is not a, no, a living soul like the first man, Adam. He's a life-giving spirit. See, Adam was a living soul but could not pass the life of God to anyone else. But this man, Christ, raised again, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, now has an ability to pass the life of God. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Into someone who will believe. Wow. A life-giving spirit. And so, when Jesus ascended after 40 days, and then to meet the timetable of God on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given. The Holy Spirit comes to the earth in a whole new work, in a whole new way. He prayed the Father, and the Father sent the Spirit. It was noted Wednesday night that on that day, the day of Pentecost, when it was fully come, there was a priest in the courtyard with two pieces of bread raised up before God to worship God and thank him for the law. And about that time, the Spirit of God ushered and filled the hearts of hungry men and women and caused them to be born again, born into the kingdom of God and filled with the power and the presence of the Spirit, bringing the church into a whole new dispensation and a whole new age. Now you and I do not just follow God in the soulless realm. We don't just know God in our mind, in our wills or our emotions. And we're not hewing out of God that we form out of stone or wood or clay. But you and I know God in the, in the spirit. Come on, somebody. I know him in my spirit this morning. Because I read to you in Romans 8 where Paul said, God has sent his spirit into my heart crying, Abba, Father. He's joined with my spirit. And my spirit that was deflated had no life. I could not commune with God. I could not know God but from afar. But when I put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ, then the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that same, are y'all here? That's a better preaching than y'all shouting right there that same spirit that raised Christ up out of the grave that same spirit is now on the inside of me and I become a whole new man hallelujah man that's good right there and so church family what it's confirming to you and I here today is that when God formed you and reformed you and made you regenerate I'm telling you you became a whole new creation this is a different entity than what you used to be. You say, Pastor Brown, but I look the same. Well, the outer shell, the outer man is still subject to that penalty of sin, meaning that there is death that occurs. The outward man, Paul said, is perishing. But the inward man is renewed day by day. And even the Holy Spirit gives us a promise that one day the final Victory will be over death itself. Come on. Even that great promise. And so we as born again believers today, let me tell you, if you could ever just begin to really see and to really contemplate who you are in Christ and what God has done in you and the power of the Holy Spirit that's on the inside of you, you would never be subject to the bondage of this world again. You would never be subject to the law of sin and of death 
Because as the writer here tells us, and we're going to go back now in conclusion, and now in this vein, we're going to look just a little bit closer at what we just read in closing today. And when I feel like it's time to stop, I'll just stop right there and pick it up again if I need to. So the Apostle Paul, as we learned last week in Romans chapter 7, has brought us through what it's like to be trapped. An unregenerate man who doesn't have the Holy Spirit but has a desire to do good. But the craving appetites of his flesh are always dominant. He even called it a war. 23rd verse, 7th chapter. He said, I see a war that's going on. And he said, it's warring. My flesh is warring against my mind, my heart. He said, in my heart. Now remember, he's talking like an unregenerate man that's followed Judaism, that had a desire to serve God, a desire to follow God, but had sought righteousness according to the law. And there was no impartation of righteousness and no quickening of the Holy Spirit according to the law. He said, I find myself in this, in this war. And he said, who am I? Oh, wretched man, 24th verse, who will deliver me from this body of death, this body of sin and decay and sickness and disease and evil desires that I am bound to? Who will deliver me? And then he said, as he thought about his own life, I thank God. Hallelujah. My God, I could see the apostle. I don't know whether he wrote Romans from a jail cell, but I'll tell you what, I bet when he got to that part right there, he stopped and began to twirl like your pastor does because he said, I thank God that it was through Christ Jesus my Lord that I've been delivered from that body of sin he said in the 8th verse there is therefore now let's read this together now it reads in an all different light there is no condemnation the law condemned sin condemns but to those who are in Christ Jesus because we don't walk according to the flesh that old unregenerate man he was bound to the flesh bound to his habitats bound to his habits and his desires but you and I are no longer bound to those habits and desires because there is a power on the inside of us greater than the weakness of our flesh. Come on, somebody. And that is the power of the Spirit of God. You and I don't walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Hallelujah. Look at this third verse. What the law could not do, it was weak through the flesh. God did what the law couldn't do God did what the law could not accomplish God did what the law was incapable of accomplishing providing righteousness and regeneration God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin he condemned sin in the flesh look at this that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit of God now, hallelujah, the reason why, let me talk to you about this before we go further, and I'll start closing in a few moments, but let me say this. This fourth verse has so much power in it because Paul is writing in the seventh chapter about a man that's wanting to walk righteously according to the law, but always finds himself unable to do so. He wants to do right. He's trying to do right. He's trying to love his brother. He's trying to uh, keep the precepts and the principles of the law, but he finds himself incapable of doing so until the Holy Spirit comes in. And then he finds himself able to do what he previously could not do. Isn't that powerful today? Look at this. For those who live... Listen, if you live according to the flesh, that's a result of you having set your mind on the things of the flesh. That's a result of you being unregenerate. 
Because if you are unregenerate, listen, you will live according to the flesh. There's no religion that can fully that can, can fully contain the sin that's contained in your flesh. There's no religion that can. Now, you can discipline your flesh. Religion can cause unrighteous man to live a disciplined lifestyle. But it doesn't produce righteousness. And it doesn't release the Holy Spirit to produce regeneration. Are y'all hearing me today? Look at this. But those of you who live according to the Spirit... How many of you say, I'm living according to the Spirit because the Spirit of Christ dwells on the inside of me? Then he would say this. He said, then you will live by the things of the Spirit. You will walk in the Spirit. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The carnal mind, look at this. He's comparing, once again, two different peoples. The carnal mind, carnal man, unregenerate man, lost man, even religious man is enmity against God. His carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. Wow, look at this eighth verse. If you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. But you are not in. Think about this. And this is, there's such a revelation. Now, wait a minute, Pastor Brown. I'm in the, I have flesh. But I'm not in the flesh in that context. I'm in the spirit. Because the spirit of God, what does he do? He dwells in me. He dwells inside of you. God has chosen you as his habitation. Come on, he sat on the throne of your heart as he used to sit on the mercy seat of ancient Israel. Now he abides in your heart. And when his spirit came in, his spirit joined with your spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 says that you are one with the Lord. You are one in spirit with the Lord. Pastor Brown, why are you telling me these things? I'm telling you there's no reason you ought to be defeated. There's no reason you ought to be downcast, disheartened, bound by sin, dominated by the weakness of the flesh because the same spirit that went into that borrowed tomb and brought Jesus out of the grave to newness of life, that same spirit went into, come on, that same spirit went into your heart and raised you up as a new man or a new woman in Christ. And so you have the spirit of God and you are his. And now you understand with greater clarity why in Romans 6, verse 14, when Paul said, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Wait a minute. I've been taught that grace was just to a degree of pardon for my sin. No, grace would allow God to breathe once again into a man, the Spirit of God, to empower him to do what he previously could not do. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? And so you've got the spirit of Christ and you're declared to be his. Daryl, join me on the platform. There's no good place to close, but people are going to start reaching for old hymn books to throw at me. <laughs> and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Come on. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We know there's a depth to that verse of scripture. On one level, it speaks of the resurrection. Yes, it does. We understand that there's going to be a quickening one day. Mortal will put on immortality. Corruption shall put on incorruption. Come on. We understand that that's not the heart of the verse. The heart of the verse is this, is that now because of the Spirit of God living on the inside of me, I can now bring my body subject to the King who resides on the inside of me. I can yield and bend and come alive. The same instruments Paul had previously said in the sixth chapter of Romans that I used to yield as instruments of sin. Now I can yield them unto God. Now I can present myself, my mind, my faculties, my hands, my heart, my thoughts, all that I am. Once again, I can walk with him and talk with him. I can fellowship with him. I can go where he says go. I can do what he says do. I can be who he says I am. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying today? All because of the spirit of Christ that's on the inside of me. He's quickening my mortal body. Yes, in one sense, I know it's dying. But on the other sense, it's living unto God. I used to live for myself. I used to live for my appetites. I used to hurt and harm people. I used to steal. I used to be a fornicator, an adulterer, or a drunkard. I used to do all these things, but now in Christ Jesus, I put those things all away because of the power of Christ that's on the inside of me. No longer bound to those dictates or desires. The war that used to wage on the inside of me that I always found myself being brought subject to that sin that was in my flesh. Now every day I rise up in the power of the Holy Ghost and I put to death those carnal desires and I declare that I am a child of the Most High God. Are you hearing what I'm saying today? Therefore, brethren, let's conclude once again. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, what's going to happen? You will die. But if you have received the Spirit, daily you will put to death the deeds of the body. Put, Put those desires to death. You will what? You will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, who are they? These are the sons of God. You are a son or a daughter of Christ. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. You weren't brought into the bondage of the law, and you've been released from the bondage of sin. But you've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Father, Father. Abba, Father, for the Spirit himself, let this happen in your heart today. For the Spirit himself does what? He bears witness with our spirit that we are what? We are children of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what we previously cannot do or could not do. Does that make sense to you at all here today? As I close here today for just a moment, All I can do on a Sunday morning is scratch the surface of the depth that's contained in these passages to hopefully, through the little revelation that God's given me, it inspires you to study. For in your study, you will begin to realize of the most amazing of all facts, and that is God has sent His Spirit into your heart. This regeneration miracle is the greatest of all miracles. 
It's greater than a blind eye and the natural being opened. It's greater than a crippled man being made whole. When an unregenerate person trusts Christ as their Savior and God sends His Spirit into their heart and declares them to be a child of God, the greatest of all glory belongs to God. There's nothing like it. And by that Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you, you can now live holy. Did y'all know that? You can live holy. You can walk. The fourth verse was one of the key verses as I began this series in my heart and my mind. Because I was looking back and I was thinking about the value of the law. And I was thinking of some of the necessity, the reason why. Let me, let me backtrack in closing. This is the final point, and this just, just, just to make this. I was looking in our culture around us, and I thought, my God, we've become so lawless. You know, we, 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 we kind of, we major in lawlessness in America today. If there's anything about the law of God or God's laws or God's principles, we don't want it in our American judicial laws. For whatever, because pagan man doesn't want to be found guilty before God. Doesn't want to be convicted or arrested before God. Doesn't want to, we don't want, pagan man does not want to define his life according to principles of God. And I was thinking about that. And I thought, but you know, I said, but men couldn't keep the law. Men would try hard. And I was seeing some of the value of the law, of the value of the good of the law. And then I saw what can happen in the fourth verse. The righteous requirement of the law can be met, not by people that are in the flesh. You can't keep that righteous requirement because you won't be righteous. But if you're born again, you're declared righteous by faith. Righteousness now imputed and imparted to you. You've received the Holy Spirit. And now I can love people that I once hated. Don't that blow your mind? I can lay down every addiction that used to trip me up. You can. You can. I don't care. Don't let anybody tell you you will always, well, your daddy was an alcoholic. No. My daddy is in heaven. Come on, somebody. That's my father. Come on. I bear his likeness and image. He freed me from sin's dominion over me. That's what I wanted you to see in this series. Whether you ever speak with tongues, whether we ever lay hands on you and see the baptism, the, the regenerating and indwelling work of the Spirit is of great value to the life of a believer. If you'll just understand it, our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I know that in this type of preaching, there's no good place to start and there's no, no good place to stop. There's not three points. There's not a poem. There's not a, uh, you know, just this really design ending. It's just, this is actually just the beginning. Just bring you in to newness of life. Bring you in. See what the Holy Spirit has done. Learn to yield to the Holy Spirit. Learn to trust the work of the Spirit in your heart and your life. Father, today I pray.